1, verse 19, we saw that Jesus gave us the, the outline there in, in verse 19 of chapter 1. And he told John to write about the things which have been. And that was the message to, the, to John himself. The things that are. And that's what we're going through right now with the letter to the churches. And then the things that will be. And that's going to begin in chapter 4. And again, just kind of as a reminder, that when we do Sardis today, then Philadelphia, and then Laodicea, then we're going to be taking a little break and looking at prophecy throughout the Bible. The very beginning, we're going to talk about, excuse me, God's use of creation. And, and pro- prophecy as it read as it is revealed in creation and nature itself. And then we're going to talk about the, the nation of Israel. And we're going to be, so we're going to talk about that a little bit, because a lot of prophecy really refers to the nation of Israel. And then, after we go through that, we come through the teachings of Christ in the book of Matthew and Luke and such, and then into Corinthians and Thessalonians about Paul's teaching. Then we're going to finally come back to the book of Revelation, having laid the foundation of what prophecy is all about. I don't know exactly how long it's going to take. I don't want it to take very long, or else we'll forget... What we're, where we're at, but yet the other side is I don't want to, to to not lay the foundation as well. As we talked about this morning in Sunday school, no no other foundation has anyone laid, and the foundation is important. If you don't lay the proper foundation, then the house won't stand. And so I think that's what happens a lot of times when people look at prophecy in the New Testament. They don't fully look at it in the context of the rest of Scripture, and so that's misunderstood. And so I want to make sure that if we do that, we do that in a proper way. Today, though, we continue on with the... Uh, the letters to the churches, and we are going to look at the letter to the church of Sardis, and we are going to use the same outline as we've used with the previous churches, and that is we're going to look at Christ's introduction, then Christ's commendation, Christ's challenge, and Christ's promise. In this passage, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, we see that Jesus Christ introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, I slid past this in chapter 1. I don't know how many people caught that, that I just kind of ignored that part of the, the... the passage when we went there, because I knew that we were going to be coming to it here, and I wanted to deal with it here. So, some of you probably have a reference Bible, and you've probably been able to figure this one out, but this is a path, a little segment, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it's a, something that really drives a lot of people bonkers, and they go, I thought there was only one spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit. What is this sevenfold spirit thing? Well, if you would, turn back in your Bibles to, to chapter 11 of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we are told about the sevenfold spirit of God. Now, this is not in place of the Holy Spirit. Understand that the word in Hebrew, ruach, and the, the word in Greek, pneumos, meaning spirit, also doesn't just refer to the Holy Spirit. It refers to the spirit of man. It can refer to breath. It can refer to wind. And so, which is really kind of fun, in John chapter 3, when Jesus says, but, you know, we don't know where the wind goes, but you see how it works, and he talks about the spirit, you know, it's really kind of a cool thing. And we miss it a lot in the English, because he's, he's playing a word game there as well. And so, but here we have the seven spirits of God. So this is not necessarily the Holy Spirit, but this is the, the seven spirits as far as this, the, the character traits of God, and those kind of things. And so in chapter 11, verse 2, we see that there is the spirit of what? The Spirit of Yahweh, okay? And so the, you see the Lord is spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And whenever you see it that way in the Old Testament, it's talking about the name of God, and that's Yahweh, that he himself called himself Yahweh. And so, first of all, we have the Spirit of Yahweh. Second, we have the Spirit of Wisdom. Thirdly, we have the Spirit of Understanding. Fourth, we see the Spirit of Counsel. Then there's the Spirit of Might. Then we have the Spirit of Knowledge. And then finally, we have the Spirit of the Fear of 
so each one of these things are their own entity. But if you, if you look at all these now together up there, you've got the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of Yahweh. And you put into your, your, your biblical glasses, okay, and you compare spiritual things with spiritual things, and you think of the book of Proverbs. Do you see anything there? Do they all kind of come together? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? And so these are all synonyms for the same thing. The idea there in the sevenfold spirit, the number seven is the number of completion, the number of perfection. And that is, it's the, it's the complete, perfect, per, perfect wisdom of God. And so Jesus is call, called the one who has the, the perfect spirit of wisdom, if you would. Okay, He's... We're told in Colossians chapter 2 that in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt what? Bodily. Okay? So he is the one who holds it all. He is the one who embodies the complete wisdom and counsel and understanding and knowledge and fear of the Lord that we can have. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. And that is that I hear so many times that as New Testament believers that we're not supposed to have the fear of the Lord. And yet, Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, or the terror of God, and the word terror there is the word phobos, which means fear. Do you know what it really means in the Greek? Fear. It means terror. I mean, if, if he didn't want to say that, he could have chosen any other word he wanted to choose. But he chose the fact that he even, as understanding by God's grace that he was not going to lose his salvation, still understood the fear of the Lord. The beginning of the fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of still of wisdom and knowledge. And so the fact is that even Christ himself says that he is the one who holds the seven spirits of God. The sevenfold spirit of God. If you really want to have wisdom, discernment, understanding, knowledge, instruction, and all those things in your life, do you know where it's going to come from? It's good from Jesus Christ himself. It's not going to come by osmosis. You're going to have to seek God and seek his counsel. Seek his face. Seek his word. Spend time in his word. Spend time in his counsel. And then live your life in the fear of the Lord. And then you'll have wisdom and understanding. He says, secondly, not only oh, that he's also the one who holds the, the seven stars. And somehow I, I, I missed that. But the seven stars, he's the one who has the seven stars. And the seven stars, again, as we talked earlier, is the picture of the, um, the ministers of the churches. Now this is going to come into play because he's getting ready to lay it down a line to them. You're going to see this in a moment with the church of Sardis. This isn't a happy message. I mean, to Ephesus, at least he said, you know, you got some good stuff. However, and to the church of um, Smyrna and to the church of Thyatira, Thyatira, he gave them some good things. And then to Thyatira, he, he laid the balm on them. But he still said, you got some good things going on. It's not going to happen with, with church of Sardis. And so he starts right off saying that, listen, I'm the one who holds the ministers, holds the messengers in his hands. What's the picture? I'm the boss. I have the ultimate control. You've got guys there who are leading you astray. But ultimately, they're going to give an account to who? To me. To, to Christ. That's exactly right. And so he goes on into the commendation then. And he starts off with this commendation of, I know your works. Now, in and of itself, that's how a lot of the other ones start off, right? And you think, oh, good. But, what does he know about your works? 
He says, you have a name, you have a reputation that you are alive. You're vibrant. There's a lot going on. It, you, you are the place to be. I mean, boy, this is the happening church. However, you're dead. You have a name that you're alive, but you are really dead. Now this ought to make you stop in your tracks. Because remember we talked about, that we talked about these letters of these churches, that these churches are seven literal churches of Asia Minor. They're really there. And I think Jesus Christ is giving a message to John to give to these messengers for their churches. But the application does apply to us today. It applies to our churches today. And I'm not saying that there are churches out there that, you know, that God prophetically put these out there because there were going to be churches who were going to demonstrate this and churches who demonstrate that. But the other side is that if you look at these churches, these churches do very well describe our churches today. And I ask myself, as I go through this, does this describe me? Does this describe us? And for the most part, again, like I said with the Church of Ephesus, there's not a lot of churches out there who are going to be saying what? Yes! We're the Church of Ephesus. We're the ones who lost our first love. Come join us for our worship. How many churches are out there going to be saying, we are the Church of Sardis? Yes, we are the Church of Sardis. We look like we're alive, but we're dead. But that's okay. Come and have fun. I mean, if nothing else, you're going to have a blast while you're here. You may not learn anything. You may go to hell when you die. But while you're here, you're going to feel good while you're worshiping. I pray that that never becomes us and that it's not us now. Listen. The Pharisees, who were one who declared that they loved the Word of God, and we love the Word of God. But we still can be playing games and using the Word of God in a hypocritical fashion. We want to look at some spiritual considerations about this, because this is a big deal. That you're alive, but now you're dead. But I, but I know that you're dead. Some spiritual consider, scriptural considerations and then some logical um, intimations. Okay, first of all, scriptural considerations. Matthew 23, where Jesus talks to these Pharisees as hypocrites. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school again and, and elsewhere, and that is that God knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. He knows why you do what you do. You may look religious on the outside. You may look good on the outside. You may have a lot of religious deeds that you do, but the inside of you is all from the wrong intent. Potentially you're doing it for yourself. Well, the same thing goes for us as a church. Why do we do what we do? Listen, is your, is your ultimate goal for this church to grow in numbers? For us to bust out this, this, this room here so that we've got to have a bigger space and we've got to have a bigger building? And then eventually we get the bigger building that you know, seats 200 people and then you know, we continue continue getting bigger and bigger and bigger so that we've got to build another building that holds a thousand people and we get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and ultimately we've got, to, we've got to get more land and we've got to build a building that's going to hold three thousand people for our assembly so we know that boy we're thriving what's your ultimate purpose if that's it it's all about us and it's not about God Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things will be added unto you my ultimate goal 
And some people don't like this as me being a pastor because my goal is wrong then. But it's not wrong. It's right. I believe it's right. I don't care where their numbers grow. I think they will grow if God desires them to grow. Some water, some soap, but what? God gives the increase. My ultimate job is to be faithful in a part of the field that God had placed me in and to do what he's called me to do, and that is what? Preach the word. To not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God and to proclaim the truth of God's word and introduce people to him. That to, to seek to expand the kingdom of God, to seek to expand the reputation and the glory of God in this world. If he allows me never to, to, to pastor a church, if he allows the church to be at this range for 20 years, ultimately, if my goal and my focus is on him, then it will be okay with me. Does that make sense? But if your goal and your focus is we've got to continually grow in order for that to be vibrancy in, the, in, in life, then your focus and your goal is wrong. It's got to be on Jesus Christ himself. And that's what he's bringing out to these Pharisees. He says, listen, ultimately your goal isn't God himself. Ultimately your goal is that people will see your robes. Ultimately people will see that your activities, your prayers, your fasting. And people will say what? Wow, look at him. Wow, look at them. And so there are a lot of churches out there who when they do their first church plant, and we talked about church planting on Friday. We had the church planting, plant, planters meeting here. And not necessarily with that group, but out there, there are other groups as well with church planting that really push that when you start the church, one of the first things you need is the entertainment package. Now, they're not going to say it that way. But you've got to make sure you've got the band so that you can play the music. Because what's going to bring the people in? The entertainment. That is 100% wrong. That is not according to God's word. You preach the... The word. You preach the truth. Now, I don't have any problem with using instruments. And as, as the Lord leads, others, well, we want that to happen. We want more than just a piano. I'm okay with it. I want people to be able to use the talents that God has given them for his glory. I don't care. There's, there's a balance. There's a range. There's, 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 you know, constraints in there. But as a whole, it's what God provides. First Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that God will give to the body, to the assembly, what he desires to be used in that assembly. And so we trust God for that. Okay? So, got to be careful. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, this is talking about the end times. He says, know this, the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And then he continues on with lovers of different things. And he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In the end times, in the last days, in the days before Christ returns, what's one of the major characteristics it's going to be looking like? Selfishness. Self-centeredness. Self-focused. That, that even in the assemblies, because that's what he's talking about right here. Remember, they're going to be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And he says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. That means that there are going to be people out there, and they're going to be portraying. They're going to be looking like they are, quote-unquote, Christians, if you would. They're going to be looking like they're religious. But really, the religion in their Christianity, if you would, because it's really not Christianity, and I say that if you would, that it's really going to be all about who? About themselves. It's going to make how they feel. It's going to be all this. And so it's a really struggle. And I see a lot of books out there, quote unquote, in the Christian realm about feeling good about yourself rather than focusing on God. In the end times, we're told it's going to happen. And we're told by, by Paul to Timothy, from such people, what? Turn away. 
Stay away from those people. If you see that people's focus is wrong, it's not a church for you to go to. It's not a gathering for you to fellowship with. Why? Be not deceived. Evil communication corrupts good morals, good manners, good lifestyles. You hang out with those who are, who are fools, you will become what? Foolish. If you hang out with the wise, then you'll become wise. That's exactly right. Now, some logical implications. Now, this isn't directly from the Bible, but this is me taking the, the scriptures, and I, I apply to this passage, and I say, okay, what can I learn? Well, the first thing I see about this church is, if nothing is happening, then Satan doesn't need to challenge it. Now, you say, where do I get this? Now, if you go to all these other churches that, that Jesus is speaking through John to the churches about, they're all facing persecution or, or doctrinal debates, divisions, um, heresies from within. And my statement here is that, listen, if God's not getting ready to do something, if God's not doing something, then why does Satan even have to worry about it? And the answer is what? He doesn't. That's what we talked about in Sunday school this morning. If you claim to be a child of God, and you're living in sin, but God is not spanking you, if God is not chastising you, then you're not his child. Because Hebrews chapter 12 is very clear that if you are his child, and if you are walking in sin, then he will chastise you. And if he doesn't chastise you, then you're an illegitimate child. You're not really his. Because which father of you here, seeing your child walking in sin or walking in disobedience, isn't going to seek to correct your child? Now, you may do it imperfectly, but you're still going to seek to correct them. Our God is a perfect father, and so he seeks to do what? Chastise us or discipline us or train us in a perfect way. So, if something's not happening, then I... I start to wonder. Now, I'm not saying that this is, it's got to be this way, okay? Because God does give us reprieves of time, and he gives us time to breathe. But the fact is, that if you are seeking to do the work of God, in the midst of a spiritual war, then your enemy's going to do what? He's going to challenge you. I mean, I mean, other, I mean, I don't know, theologically, I don't believe that Satan, A, is bound. That's our millennialism. That's just not so. And B, I don't think he's laid down his, his weapons yet. I don't think he's, he's, he said, okay, I give up. I quit. Rather, we're told that Satan, his name is Abaddon and Apollyon. He's the destroyer. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who's seeking to destroy. So I think that there's a battle going on. So if nothing's happening, and that's what was going on there, that something's going on. Now, to get this other side, is what Jesus was telling him. In the eyes of the pagan community, in the eyes of the pagan community, they were what? They were alive and thriving. Now, if unbelievers... Okay, who theoretically should have a different worldview, should have a different way of looking at things than I do. If unbelievers think that I'm an exciting place to be at and they're facing no conviction, there's got to be something wrong. Now, I don't... Hear what I'm saying. I, as a messenger, seek not to offend. If I offend with my style of presentation, if I'm arrogant, if I'm rude, if I'm ignorant... That's on me, and I'm going to give an account to God for that. But if I seek to speak the truth in love, and the truth offends you, that's on you, if you won't deal with it. Does that make sense? Okay? If, if the truth steps on my toes, and I remember those days, and I still remember those days, I mean, as I read God's word, how God steps on my toes, but I remember that years ago, when, when I wasn't the one up here doing this, and sometimes I'm... You know, I'm given the privilege of being sitting there listening to others preach, and, 
And I pray for God to step on my toes. I pray for God to use me, to use them in my life. But I remember what it's like to have my toes stepped on continually. And, and to be angry about it. Well, then I had to learn to do what? Get over it. To not be, actually, to not be angry, but rather to what? To receive it. To check the scriptures to make out, to make sure that what was being taught was truly from God's word. And if it was from God's word, then I had to do what? I had to receive it, and I had to apply it to my life. Whether I liked it or not. Because the reality is, in my flesh, I don't like a whole lot of things that are of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one another, so you cannot do the things that you would. And then he goes on with what the works of the flesh are, and what the fruit of the Spirit are. And he says, but if you are in Christ, you do what? You'll seek to mortify the deeds of the flesh. I have got to become so desiring for the things of God that my life in and of itself is going to be an odor of life to one and an odor of death to another. There are going to be people in, in, in the world who aren't pleased by my message. And I can't, I can't worry about that. But there are going to be people in my life who God brings into my life who will receive the truth. But all I know is that straight up, if the world thinks that this is a happening place and, there's, and they come in and there's no conviction of sin, something's wrong. Even 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says that the, the, in the, 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 the purpose of the assembly, when the assembly comes together, he says that it, must, it should so work that you are so focused on God and glorifying God that when an unbeliever comes in, they recognize the fact that something's different and they glorify God. So again, I ask myself, not just personally, but us corporately, corporeally, if you would, and that is, would we be described as this church? Are we, are we alive? Really alive? Or are we just alive on the outside? Now, I like to think that we really are alive, and we're alive on the inside. You know, I like to, to think that. But I, I like to challenge myself as well. I'm not afraid to go before the Lord and lay it out before Him and say, God, is this us? Is there a shade of this in us? Is there sin in us that needs to be confessed at this moment so that we become truly vibrant, truly alive for the glory of God? Are there vestiges of self that we're holding on to? Vestiges of worldliness that we're holding on to? Things that we're clinging to that we want rather than what you want? Do we really desire to worship the Lord in spirit and truth or do we worship, desire to worship the Lord according to our own desires? So, let's move on. They taught the cause of death. Well, we know what death is, right? According to the word. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it then that would kill a church? What would bring death to a church? Anybody know? Say again. Division. Division can, 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 can destroy a church. It can just explode it and implode it. And all other kind of plodes, right? Okay? Corruption. Corruption can. I mean, that, I mean, you get corrupt leaders. You don't have any of those. But anyways, you could. Uh, you know, I, anyways, but yeah, but I could become very corrupt. I know who I am. But you have corruption in the leadership. Then that could be a problem. Um, Aaron? People turning away from God. That's exactly right. 
years ago, I mean, I've said very clearly, you know, if I was ever in a church and they, they wanted a, um, a woman pastor, it was time for me to leave, you know, because clearly that's not according to God's word, right? So you've got people who are turning away from God, okay? You're, you're all giving me symptoms. Unforgiveness. 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 I mean, that's, that leads to bitterness and everything else. I mean, that, that's an awful thing as well. But again, that's another symptom. Not just unconfessing, that's, that's a symptom, but it's sin. That's exactly right. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Isn't that what? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It doesn't matter whether it's an individual or a church. The minute the church becomes okay with allowing sin, it will eventually lead forth to death. If Marcia and I aren't spending time together, if we're not talking, how would you describe the vibrancy of our, our relationship? You would say it's what? It's dead. There's no life in our relationship. We may live together. We may have the same last name. Well, not really. She married a guy named Croven. So, but, and it really is. I'm a marriage license that she married a guy named Croven. But I think that we probably have the common law marriage by now. And so, um, <laughs> so she, she just tells people she's Cor- Marcia Corbin. She's really Marcia Croven. Um, we just never we got it changed. Anyway, I figured, the early years before I was saved, I figured it gave me an out. Anyways, so, <laughs> no, that's, that's not true. It's, it is a joke, but um, it's a fun stuff. But anyways, but you may have the same last name. You may live together. But if you're not talking and you spend no time together, you really have no relationship. You're dead. Your relationship's dead. Well, think about it. We as a, a, an assembly are a bunch of individuals who come together corporally as one body. What happens in my body if gangrene starts in, in my, my finger? You know, I bit, my, I bit my, my, my fingernails, I bit my cuticle off, and, and I ripped it, and it opened up a little, just a little opening right there in the side, right? And some dirt got in there. And, and it started to, to get infected, and I didn't get it taken care of. And the infection became what? Gangrenous. Gangrenous. Okay, it became gangrene. And, and I still didn't take care of it. What will eventually happen to me if I don't take care of the gangrene in my finger? It'll spread throughout my whole body and kill me. Just because I bit my cuticle. Can you die from biting your cuticle? The answer is yes. There is the potential. Now, isn't that kind of a weird thing? Cancer. Cancer. We talked about Mira Lee with leukemia. Cancer is such a, a, a violent thing that kills our body. But honestly, does cancer by itself destroy the whole body at one time? It doesn't. It starts in one spot and then does what? It's metastasized and it, it, it spreads. Okay? Well, the same thing happens in the body. Sin is the cancer that will destroy it. We're told in 1 Corinthians 5, we'll be there in a few weeks in Sunday school, but that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if we allow sin to dwell in our body, it will eventually go forth throughout the body. We've got to preach against sin. We've got to encourage one another against sin. Hebrews chapter 10 says that we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together so much more as the day of Christ approaches. Why? So that we can provoke one another. And the word there for provoke is not a nice word. It's not like... Gee, Andrew, you're such a great guy. Provoke there actually means, Andrew, 
Andrew, do you know what you're doing? You provoke one another to love and good works. It means that you actually, you push something at them. You make them think about it. It's not necessarily a very kind word. And so we're provoke one another to love and good works. Do we do that here? I want to challenge you with that. We may still be alive. We may not be the dead church. But we will become a dead church if we don't hit sin head on. If Jesus Christ isn't our focus and our goal, if we are not seeking to be holy as He is holy, if we ever become content, that's a little bit below. That is the start of the dead church. That is the start of us becoming conformed to the world rather than the image of Jesus Christ. We've got to eradicate this cancer while we can. Christ's challenge. We see, first of all, the call that he gives to the church. He gives him five statements right off the bat as he comes to him. He says, he says, because of all this, you guys need to what? You need to wake up. And what's neat here, and it says, because it says, be watchful, right? But the, in the Greek, it's a process stating that you need to start it. You need to be watchful. In other words, what? You haven't been. You haven't been watchful. You were the watchman on the watchtower who did what? Fell asleep on his watch. That was the smallest guy in the Bible, you know. There's a guy who fell asleep on his watch. You got pretty, pretty small to fall asleep on your watch. Anyways, but you need to wake up. Listen, understand that there's a, there is a war that's happening. How many of you see the demons that are here today? I know, you may look at some of your kids, you may look at your kids, may be looking at you, but apart from one another, the real demons that are in the spiritual realm, do you see them? I'll guarantee you they're here. Can you see the angels, the cherub, the, the seraphs, the, the cherubim, the seraphim that are, that, are, that are here, that are engaged in the warfare as well? I'll guarantee you they're here. We just don't see them. It's kind of hard to comprehend that they're here. It's kind of hard to comprehend that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the spiritual... Uh, uh, darkness in the heavenly realms. There is a spiritual war that's going on and we need to what? Wake up, smell the spiritual coffee if you would, and understand that we are in a war. The guys in Baghdad have got to be aware of that. I remember when you were there, Lawrence, and been praying for you, for you and your unit. Because the reality is, the guys that are there, they're going on the streets every day and behind any door, under the, under the, uh, the, the cloak, of any child or woman or man could be a bomb. They're in a war zone. And they have to remember they're in a war zone. And they have to be watchful. They have to be vigilant. The word here for this, uh, to, to be watchful, is the word Gregorian. It's where we get the word Gregory from. It means to be vigilant. It's the word that is used in 1 Peter chapter 5 saying that to, to be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, is lurking about seeking whom he may devour. And if you're not watchful, guess what's going to happen? You will be devoured. We need to be watchful. We need to strengthen the remnant. Those are the ones that are remaining. I think this is neat. Jesus says that even... You, you missed one word, Steve, in, 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 when you're reading the Bible this morning. And I'm not one to, to be critical because I miss so many words and I misspell words. But the one word I thought was really interesting was even. You have those in Sardis. But what he, Jesus said was you have those even in Sardis, who haven't gone away from the truth, right? 
And what he's, it's a real slim. He's not just saying you have people in Sardis who are still remaining truthful. He's saying, even in Sardis. I mean, it is so bad there. It is, you guys have given yourself so much over to yourself and so much over to your flesh and so much over to the wickedness and so much over to the evil that's surrounding you in that city. But if it was possible, even the very elect would be what? Deceived. But clearly, there's what? It's not. Because there's a remnant. There is a remnant that has remained faithful to my name. And you've got to be careful. Now you as a leader, remember he's talking to this messenger, this minister of the church. You have got to go back there and strengthen them before they what? What does it say? What does it say in, in, in Revelation chapter 3 there? Strengthen those who remain before what? Come on, you got it. Before they die. Why? Potentially, your sin is even affecting those who are faithful. Don't think it won't affect us. The fads that are going on in Christianity, you'll be amazed at how many times i got to deal with fads. I'm not into fads. I'm not into the latest books. Solomon said to the writing of books, there is no end. There is one book that has never changed its philosophy. This is the book that I need to major on. I can spend more time reading other books written by men about this book, but than I spend about this book. And I need to spend more time in this book than other people's books about this book. Why do I want to eat regurgitated steak when I can eat steak? It's a great illustration, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, come over to my house. We, we might still have a baby grinder at home. You know, if we have spaghetti, I can grind it up. We can put it in the, in the pulverizer. Put it in the blender and I can pour you out some, some baby food spaghetti. Me, I'd rather have the sausage and spaghetti. I don't know about you. I could bring, bring you over and have a venison steak, you know, and we can emulsify it. You know, if I can't do it well, I can chew on it for a little bit and soften it up and put it on your plate. But do you realize that this morning that's what you're getting? You're getting, a, you're getting a mother bird's, if you would, regurgitations. I know I'm a papa bird. I'm not a baby bird. I'm a mother bird. But anyways, I studied for this. I spent hours preparing for this. And I'm going to do it all in 45 minutes to an hour. So there's a couple hours of study that you didn't get. There's word studies that you won't even hear about. It's hard for me not to teach you everything. That's why it takes so long sometimes, because I want to give you everything I got. It's so exciting. I'm so thrilled that God slapped me over the head and told me I got to do every one of these, these churches independently. Because I'm going to glean so much. You could do that too. I've said before, eSword. If you haven't got eSword, you need to get eSword. It's free. It, it's, you pay hundreds of dollars for these Bible software programs out there. But Rick Myers, praise God, has the same philosophy that I have. I don't know whether he's charismatic or he's an amill or what he is. I don't really know. I didn't ask. But he has the same philosophy about ministry, and that is freely you received, freely give. And God had given, he had a burden that put out software out there. He wasn't, a, from what I understand, he's not even a computer guy. But he just started doing it. He started by faith doing it, putting, putting something together. And he's improved the package, improved the package, improved the package. That's what I use. I mean, he's got Greek on it. He's got Hebrew on it. It's got a couple different Greek things on it, a couple different Hebrew things on it. I have the uh, Croatian, Serbian, Serbo-Croatian Bible on my computer. So I've got, I've got, I could get Spanish on it. I mean, you get some amazing things that you could put on it. The only thing I've had to pay is I've had to pay $15 in order to get the New King James on it. Because he can't put it on there for free because he has to pay Tommy Nelson for their copyright of the Word of God. 
Now, th- I mean, that, I, I, I hope I'm not being too, too rude, but it frustrates me to no end when people want to make you pay for the Word of God. You know, this is so important for you, but if you pay us 55 bucks, we'll let you read it. Guys on the radio who have the most important message that you need to hear, so for $24.99, they'll send you that, that message on CD. Listen, if people need to hear the message, and you didn't get it for free, it came from God, then you give it for free. The worst time of my life every year is when you guys debate on what my salary is going to be. Because I'm not a hireling. I like the fact that you guys like to, to help me out so I have more time to study. Don't get me wrong. Give me more. No, anyways. But, um, but the other side is I'm not doing it for money. If I'm only doing it for money, then I'm a hireling. Do you get it? I'm doing it because God's got a call in my life to teach people his word. And I'd love to see you grow. That's what I want. Nothing, I would love to see all you men become pastors of churches. Not necessarily going out and being head pastors of big churches. But it could be that God is using you in house churches all over the place. And when the, when the persecution comes, that's going to come in our lifetime. I really believe it will be all our lifetime. That in, in, we're not meeting in buildings anymore because there's all the persecution going on. But you're leading a little house church in your neighborhood. And you're ministering to people and you're teaching the word of God. And you got e-sword. And so, therefore, you don't may not know Greek, but you know how to do Strong's Concordance. And you can see what Greek word it was and what it really means in the, in, in behind the scenes. I'm wasting too much time. Not wasting. I'm taking too much time here because i got a whole much more to give you. But, but do it. Spend time at strengthen the remnant. You can do it. Strengthen them. Remember. Remember how you received and heard. We talked about this. Last week a little bit. When, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, do you remember where we talked about that how Paul was telling Timothy, remember the things which you have learned from your youth, right? And so remember the things that you heard. Go back somewhere in your past before you became dead, before you became complacent, before you became lethargic. You had a love for the Lord. Go back. Remember where it was. Remember Hold fast, guard it, preserve it, and then what? <laughs> Repent. Christ's message has been the same the entire time. You know what the message of the Old Testament prophets was? Repent. What was the message of John the Baptist? Repent. What was the message when Jesus came? Repent. What was the message of Peter in Acts chapter 2? Repent. What's Jesus' message here even to the churches of Revelation? Repent. Change the way you think. Metanoia. Change the way you think. Quit thinking like the world. Think like God. You know what? If we change the way we thought, we change the way we act. We always think repent means to, to change the way I act. Eventually it does. There's another word which means to turn around. But this isn't the word that Jesus uses. This is not the word that Peter uses. It's not the word that, that um, John the Baptist used. It's the word metanoia. It means change the way you think. Because again, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. So he becomes. Change your thoughts or change your actions. Okay? Let's go on. The consequences. What's the consequences, though, if you don't? Jesus says, but if you don't, if you don't watch, if you're not watchful, be careful, because what's going to happen? Well, if you don't watch, I'm going to come as a thief. I'm going to come as a thief in the night. Now, the thief, he's coming to your house. He's a burglar. He put a, sent you a letter. You got it in the mail today, right? Or yesterday, actually, because I didn't deliver the mail. Maybe you didn't get your mail yesterday, so you got a box today. And it said, by the way, I just want you to know, I'm a believer, and I really feel I need to do all things in truth and, and, and everything. And so I want you to know I'm coming to your house to, to swipe everything tonight. I just wanted to give you a little chance to know. Is that how a thief operates? 
No. When's the thief going to come? When he thinks that you're not prepared. Well, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 to 5, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, we'll talk about this again in a few weeks, because this is from the picture of Israel, but when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now stop for a moment. You ladies who have had given birth to children. Okay? Then all of a sudden, you were sitting there one day, and the baby came out. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. You know, you were sitting there having a cup of coffee. You know, you are you had a conversation, maybe with your husband or whatever, and you went, wow. Hi there. And, and then all of a sudden, the baby was there, and you just kept going on with life then, right? It didn't happen that way. What's the, what happened? There was a little what? A tremor. It's just a little tremor. Probably about a 0.5, maybe 1.0 on the Richter scale. Not a big thing, but you went, ooh, was that gas? Or, 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 or something starting here. And then, then about 20 minutes to an hour later, you had another tremor. And you went, oh, maybe so. And now you're worried about whether it's Braxton Hicks or whether it's a real thing, you know? And so all of a sudden, the, the tremors start to what? intensify just a little bit, you know, all of a sudden, it's like we're getting closer to the epicenter, you know, and then all of a sudden, as they get closer, the tremors get closer and closer together, and they're starting to increase, you go into what is called transitional labor, I've done this six times, so I'm, I'm getting kind of familiar with the process here, okay, hopefully it's the last time, but, no, not seven, six, twins, Ah, math. Okay. <laughs> she didn't have to go through all that for Ben. It was Tim, all Tim's fault. Anyways, he was just kind of hiding. Anyways, and so, so you go through this transitional part, and that's when it goes from the 1 to 4 to the 8 to 10. You know, and, and, and everything's happening at this moment. Now, I can see a woman. Where's Tracy at? She left me. My illustration walked out. Anyway, I can see a woman who's pregnant. And I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. But if I know, when is her due date? 15 May. May, May 15th. Prophecy. Ready? Assuming that all goes right in her pregnancy, I'll guarantee you by June 15th that Tracy's going to be holding a child in her arms. That's an amazing prophecy, isn't it? I mean, I, I got a good, good chance, assuming that everything goes right, I got a good chance that that's going to happen. Not many women are going to go four weeks late. They're miserable. They're, in our day and age, they're already seeing the doctor for what? To, to, have it, to have it happen anyway. I mean, Jessica was born, was due December 9th. She was born December 26th, but we'd already had it on the docket that by December 30th that she was being induced so that we had the tax write-off. Anyways, so... <laughs> No, that wasn't the reason. But the doctor, he didn't want it to go beyond two or three weeks late. You know? And that's just the way we're. So I can say that this is going to happen. But you know what? As all of a sudden the tremors start to happen, I can become better with my predictions, can't I? Because as those tremors start to happen, I can say, hey, 72 hours from now, you're going to be holding a baby. It better not be 72 hours of this. No, I didn't say it was going to be 72 hours of that. I just said that in 72 hours, you're going to be having a baby. You could be having that baby 12 hours from now. You could have the baby three hours from now. I just don't know how long the labor is going to take. I just know what? Once the labor starts, a baby's coming out. This is going to happen. The day of the Lord is not going to take you unsurprised. Or by, by surprise. That's right. Unawares. But rather, it's going to be like a woman who is pregnant. Right? And they
day shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you as a thief. Hey! We're starting to feel some tremors. We'll talk about those tremors later on when we get to Matthew 24, okay? But anyways, it's gonna, it's not, it shouldn't take you as unsurprised. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. The reality of that is we should not be taken as a thief. If there are people, if there are believers who are caught by surprise when Christ returns, it's because they haven't been looking to Christ. So we have the pronouncement, then we have the implication of it. And that is, if you are watching, then he will not come as a thief. You will have discernment and understanding the times. Now, you think, wow, we're at the end here with the promise. No, we're at the beginning. Okay, anyways, we're not at the beginning, but this is the exciting stuff here. Here, Christ gives them two promises. First of all, in all the other churches, he says to those who overcome, to those who overcome, to overcome. Before he talks to those who overcome here, he's got to deal with those who haven't defiled their garments. Because there are, there are people there, the remnant, who still haven't gone aside to, to the apathy of the rest of the church. And so he says to them, to those who have not defiled their garments, there is going to be a reward for you. And your reward is that you are going to walk, not just walk in white robes, not just walk in glory, but you're going to walk with me. You're going to walk with me. Do you remember each one of these churches, you're going to partake of the manna? You're, you're going to, um, last week, and um, we talked about the, um, oh, the white stone and the, my mind's blanking. The white stone, black stone, but there was something else that, um, oh, oh, the morning star. I'm going to give you the morning star. That's me. And so each one of these, he's really, he, he's telling, I'm going to give you me. And so here, it's, it's like, I'm going to use Andrew. Get up, Andrew. It's like Andrew's going to, this is, this is, Andrew's me and I'm Jesus, okay? He's going to come down and he's going to take me by the hand. It's, it's kind of like the picture. You're going to walk with me. You're going to be with me in white. Do you know what the picture of white is? White is the picture of purity. White's the picture of victory. White's the picture of glory. I mean, you think about those things, how the Bible pictures those things. When you think about the Lone Ranger, he wore what? He wore white, you know? And so, you know, you the, the, the victory that's going on there. And so the picture here is, is that same thing. You're going to walk with me in white. You're going to walk with me in purity. You're going to walk with me in victory. You're going to walk with me in glory. It's a phenomenal thing. Why? Because they're worthy. Because you're worthy. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and think about these, these robes that he's talking about. Isaiah says that my, my robe is like what? A filthy rag. That my righteousness, in and of myself, is a filthy rag. It's awful. It's putrid. It's muddy. And every time I try to clean myself off, it's like taking the, my rags out of the mud puddle, because I want to get them wet, right? And doing this. And what do I do when I try to clean myself? I make it muddier. I just make it dirtier. So how can I ever be worthy? In and of myself, I'll never be worthy. So why are these folks worthy to walk with Jesus in white? <coughs> because they haven't turned from him. Because they recognize that their whole righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Remember the, the first one from the book of Matthew we talked about? With the, you, Woe to you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Because you're like what? Whitewashed sepulchers. You're clean on the outside. you got these white robes on. But inside, it's full of dead men's bones. And he says, listen, you guys, you've been worried about the inside. 
You've been worried about making me cleaning, cleaning you on the inside, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the white robe to wear. You haven't been worrying about putting on the white robe for everybody else to see. You've been worrying about the white robe on the inside for me to see. And you know what's going to happen? Oh, it's for me, I'm sorry. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to give you the white robe. Isn't that awesome? One day, if you're not for, so much worried about your outside, you're worried about your inside, God's going to glorify your outside. He's going to give you the white robe to wear because you will be worthy. Secondly, then, he talks about to those who overcome. They will be clothed in white. Talked about it before because they're the same folks, right? They will be written in the book of life. Now, I know it doesn't say that they'll be written in the book of life. What it says is they, their names will not be blotted out from the book of life, okay? Now, there are some questions that you should ask yourself, or you might ask yourself, and people will ask yourself when they read this, and that is, can we be blotted out of the book of life? If I'm saved, can I become unsaved? Because clearly, if my name's written in the book of life, that means I'm what? Saved. So if my name's blotted out, does that mean I can be unsaved? Do we get added to the book of life when we accept Christ? Or are we removed from the book of life when we reject Christ? That's a good question, too. I don't know if you may not have thought of that, but now you, now you think about that one, okay? And so, there is a good answer to these. Well, the response is that there are two distinct records being kept in heaven. There is the Lord's Book of the Living and the Lamb's Book of Life. First, I want to talk about the Lord's Book of the Living, okay? And so, in Exodus 32, verses 31 to 33, we read, Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, what? Blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said, the Yahweh said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Ooh, what's the book? It's a book that God is, is writing. Well, now you can see at the top, I'm declaring this the book of the what? The book of the living. Now we see in Psalms 69, verse 19 and 28, it says, David says, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. The book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. And in Psalm 139, David refers to this book again. He says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. They all were written. The days fashioned for me, as when yet there were none of them. The Bible tells us that there is this book. I'm going to use singular right now, because that's the way it's being used. But the word for book can, can refer to a, a, a series of books, a set, okay? Like the encyclopedia. You know, you have encyclopedias at home, but really, you really have a world book encyclopedia. It just happens to have many volumes, okay? But it really is one book. Okay, if they wanted to put it all in one book, it'd be like this, okay? But it's in volumes, so that makes it easier for you to use, okay? There is, the Bible declares, that there are this thing, this, there is this thing called the Book of the Living, where it may have volumes, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, but there is this thing called the Book of the Living. And that is that all your deeds, all your actions, everything that's going on in your life, your life is being recorded. And as I said in Sunday school, God's not worried about the, the size of the hard drive. Okay? He's not worried about whether it's terabytes or whether it's beyond. He has infinite amount of memory, right? So here we are. And so we have this book of living. But we have also this thing called the Lamb's Book of Life. And, and that, that jumped on me here. Let's see if I can... Okay, the registry... So the, the, the Lord's Book of the Living is the registry of the works of man. And we compare that to the Chronicles of the Kingdom. Now this is important because 
what you want to do is think about Jesus Christ being the king. And in the kingdom, okay, like in our Bible, we have what? 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Do you know what those are? They're the chronicles of the kings. They're the events of what was going on in the kingdom during the times of those kings. Okay? So the king, our king, has a chronicle, if you would. And it's a registry of the works of men. Okay? But now there's also the Lamb's Book of Life that we want to talk about. And that is Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. life. Okay? Now, earlier, just a couple of verses before that, okay, and remember it's a, it's a letter, okay, and so the context of this, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from where we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is that there is this census, this book of census, we'll look at this in a moment, this registry of the census of heaven. Okay, and so just as the kings would also have a second registry, which was a registry of all those who are citizens of his kingdom, so also our king has a registry as well. We call it the Lamb's Book of Life. And so we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, who are what? <coughs> registered. We're registered in heaven. You didn't think you were registered. Remember, some of you guys, when you turn 18, you have to what? Register for the drafts, okay? Well, once you get saved, God puts you in his registry. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And so we see in Revelation chapter 13, 4 and 8, and there's other verses, passages that are on your sermon note sheets we don't have time for, but you can look at it. It says, they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? All who dwell on earth will worship him, that is the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. And so we have the Lamb's book of life, which in, in contrast to the, the book of the living, the Lord's book of the living, this is the registry of the, the citizens of heaven, and we compare this to a citizen, the census of a kingdom. Now, how do you put these together? Well, the Lord's Book of the Living and the Lamb's Book of Life do come together in Scripture. And they are shown together in Scripture, and this is a phenomenal thing for me. And we see it in Revelation chapter 20, verse, uh, verses 12 to 15, in the great white throne judgment. And you all know this picture, but you probably never put it all together. And this is exciting for me. And it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, in what? Volumes, books, were opened. And so we'll put that on this side over here, right? We've got all these, these books over here. And I'm sure that the, the, the volumes are quite massive. It's like a huge library, you know, over here. And then it says, and another book was opened. And we'll use my Bible for that and put that right here. And another book was opened. This is the what? The book of life. So what are these? Clearly they're not the book of life, are they? I submit to you it's the book of the living. Okay? And that is the works of the living. In other words, because you don't record the acts of the dead people. You know, they're dead. So they don't record their, their events anymore. And so, so these books here are what we call the books of works, right? Which is the works that people did while they were living on earth. Okay? So, and so we go on. It says, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written where? In the volumes, in the books, not the book. Get it? You're going to be judged. Now, I'm, I'm assuming for a moment, I'm not, I don't know whether you're saved or not. Okay? So let's assume you're a general, ordinary person. Okay? You're going to be judged 
according to your works. Right? But then it goes on, and anyone not found written where? In the registry of the citizenship of heaven, the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. When you go before the great white throne judgment, now, I'll come back and I'll, I'll pull it back for a moment for those who are believers, okay? Because I'm not going to stand before this judgment seat. I'm going to stand before another one. We talked about that in Sunday school. But I have to, even though we did talk about it in Sunday school, I've got to come back because some of you weren't in Sunday school. You're going to stand before the great white throne judgment. And they're going to say, Moore, Stephen, Augusta, Georgia, around 2000. Oh, okay. There's a lot of Stephen Moores in here. Oh. Well, do you know that Stephen, when he was, no, he was with her. And so, and all of a sudden, through the listing of the annals, how many sins does it take for you to go to hell? Just one. You may obey the whole law and yet offend at one point and you're guilty of it all. And so, we're told that the, dud, the dead, the duds, the, the dead, are going to be judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books, the annals, the, the volumes. I believe that's the book of the living. That God is recording the things that you've done. And you're going to be guilty because of your own self. Because of the things that you've done. But over on this side, there's the book of the living. The book of life, I'm sorry. The book of life. The Lamb's book of life. And over here, under the M's, under the M-O-O's, under the M-O-O-R's, under the M-O-O-R-E's, there's a guy named Stephen. Is it him? Yes. Hopefully too. Yes, well, yes, but I'm worried about you right now. <laughs> Hopefully there's more, more Stephens than there too. Anyways, but, there, but the Lord is there, my, my advocate. And he's going to say, but Father, what? I died for him. Now, actually, it's not going to be that way, because who's the judge? Jesus is the judge. He's going to look over here and say, however, Stephen is a citizen of heaven. Isn't that awesome? That's an awesome thing. Now, for you who are believers, you're never going to be, right now, if you're a believer right now, I don't believe you'll be before that white throne, and I'm getting ahead of myself, you'll get, we'll get there later on. But there is going to become a time when Jesus Christ is going to come in clouds and he's going to take us to be with him. And we're told to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I won't go before that judgment, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells me that I will go before the judgment seat of Christ. And I will give an account for the works that I've done in my, my flesh. In other words, what have I done with the, with the gift of salvation that he's given to me? Have I used it for his glory or not for myself? And so what a beautiful thing. That, But it should be to me to know that there is that recording that's going on there. And finally, Jesus says, I will confess them before my Father, and I will confess them before the angels. In the book of Matthew, Jesus said, listen, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Romans 10, verse 10 says that this is salvation, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Those who are truly saved will do what? confess with their mouth Jesus Christ. They'll give allegiance to Jesus Christ. And when that happens, the fact is that Jesus says what? And I'll give allegiance to you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is an awesome thing. So when you go back now to this thing about being blotted out, note what he says. Read it now carefully. He doesn't say that somebody can be blotted out of the book of life. What he says is, 
I will by no means blot you out of the book. Instead of it being a question of whether I can, it's an assurance that I never can be. Did you get it? Isn't that awesome? It's not because of me. But it's all because of him. And so I ask you, I ask me these questions. And that is, are you alive? Are you truly in love with the Lord? Do you attend and serve because of tradition? Do you give from a grateful heart? Do you give it all? I mean, you know, honestly, straight up. The truth of your faith is primarily going to be confessed or revealed in your words, your checkbook, and your activities. If you're alive, then people are going to know you're alive. Why? Because you're going to be moving about. You're going to be talking, right? People who are dead lay in a casket. They do nothing. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And so if you are alive, if we as a church are alive, then people will know that because they'll see it in our words. They'll see it in our checkbook, how we use our money, his money, and by what we do in our lives. We're going to be different than the rest of the world. So I ask you individually, in your own house, you as an individual, are you alive or are you dead? What are the, what are the indicators that would let somebody know whether you're alive or whether you're dead? Honestly, we probably have some dead weight here. If, if it's like most churches, I'd like to say no, that that never be. But to say that would be ignorant. And so you have to decide. You have to ask yourself, Lord, where I am, am I in the spectrum? Am I alive? Praise God. Or am I apathetic and lethargic right now? Am I dead in that relationship with you? And I need to remember and repent. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. Forgive us, Lord, for our lack of faithfulness to you. God, you are an awesome God. I thank you that before the foundations of the world were laid, that you sent Christ to die for us. Forgive me, Lord, for having my focus turn so many times to the things of the world and the things of the flesh. Lord, I pray that I would be like a city that is set upon a hill whose light cannot be hid. And that we as a body would be the same, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us each individually be vibrant for your glory. And that as a body we would be vibrant for your glory. Lord, and that vibrancy we would put forth into the community, Lord. Not just to bring people here, but God, to make your name known. To see people come to know you as their Savior. To see people turn from their sin to your salvation. Lord, if you would desire then for us to grow, Lord, we would rejoice in that. But God, help it not to be that which takes our eyes off of you but rather multiply the ministry to glorify your name. And God, if you know that it would cause our eyes to take, cause our eyes being taken off of you, withhold it from us until we're ready to magnify you. In Jesus' name, amen.